seated. Uh, before I read God's word, let's ask his help. Holy Spirit, come. We know that apart from your working in our hearts, we are carnally minded, and yet the things of Scripture are spiritually minded, and so we pray that you would illumine the word to us, and you'd give us humble hearts that simply want to be taught, that can say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Help us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please take out your copy of God's Word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. If you're using the Bible that's in your row, you'll find it on page 1006. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take that copy home with you. We would be delighted for it to be used regularly and not just on Sundays. We started Hebrews 9 two weeks ago. We took a break last week for Reformation Day, and so now that you are fresh and rested and ready for Hebrews, let's get back to it. You'll remember at the beginning of Hebrews 9, the author of Hebrews was highlighting some of the limitations of the Old Covenant system, the Old Testament system, namely that it could not provide true and lasting access to God. You know, you see that if you even think just about the layout of the temple, the Old Testament temple, it had these concentric and and increasingly exclusive circles. So you had first the court of the Gentiles, so everyone could go there. But then there was a point where the Gentiles could go no further, and then was the court of the women. So women could go there, but they couldn't go any further. And then there was the court of of the Israelites, the Jewish men. But the average Jewish man, the layman, could not go any further. Then there was the court of the priests or the Levites. And then even a more exclusive place there was the most holy place. And only one person, the great high priest, could only go there once per year. And even that for a very limited period of time. And he had to take blood with him. What was the point of all of that? It was to show that access to God under the Old Covenant was very limited. And that's really important because if you remember the context of Hebrews, it's being written to a people who were raised Jewish, have now become followers of Christ, but it's starting to become very costly to follow Christ. There is persecution, they're becoming social outcasts, and they're starting to wonder, is it really worth it? Is it worth everything that we've given up to follow Christ? And and the author of Hebrews is saying, think of everything you've gained by following Christ. Whereas the old covenant was, uh, was so limited, the new covenant is all about access to God. And so our passage today starts off with a, a very important word, but. It starts off, but when Christ appeared. And here's what the author wants us to see. Yes, it, you used to have very limited access to God because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. But when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared and shed his blood, access to God, access to God was made open for you. So listen now to the reading of God's word, Hebrews 9. We're going to start at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, in other words, if they outwardly cleanse you, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything, is pur- uh, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with those rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Those of you who are married probably realized something about six months or so after you got married. Something that nobody told you. And that is, you probably realized that the family you grew up in is actually really weird. You may not have known that before because it was all you ever know. But then you get married and you bring another person in to the circle of all those inside jokes and those traditions and the foods you eat and the rules you have. And they look at you and go, you know, your family's really weird. I've heard that a couple of times a week. But it's not that big a deal because you realize you also married into a family that's kind of weird. They have their own traditions and customs and rules and foods. And so that's part of why we take vows. So you can't go anywhere at that point once you see how weird each other's families are. You know, I wonder if the same thing doesn't happen in the church. We have some things in the life of the Christian church that are pretty strange. But we're so accustomed to it that we don't realize how weird it really is. You know, just think about what we're singing about today. We are singing songs 
about crosses and blood and death. You know, Christians don't think that's strange. We think it'd be strange not to. But imagine a non-Christian who's never heard of these things. If they knew nothing about Christianity and were to step in here and hear us singing about blood and crosses and death, they'd say, you people are really weird. Just think about Christians in the first century, how strange the world thought they were. You know, to hang on the cross was seen as a punishment for the worst of criminals. It was, it was shameful. It was shameful even to be associated with someone who went to the cross. That helps you understand why Peter denied even knowing Christ. And so, to a first century unbeliever, they think it is really strange that you people would wear crosses on your neck and sing about the cross. You people are really peculiar. Or think about the sacraments. I I was at Presbytery on Thursday, and we got ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, and the minister said, we're about to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. And nobody batted an eye. We knew exactly what he meant. But an unbeliever would think, you people are really sick people. In fact, the first century church was accused of cannibalism because they professed to eat the the, the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. It's all very strange. You know, we can take it for granted, but if you think about it, the substance of the Christian hope is a man bloody and dying on a cross for our sins. We're going to think about the strange truth of Christianity this morning. And I want to focus specifically on the blood of Christ because that's at the center of our passage that I read. You know, look at Moses' language there in verse 20. He says, this is the blood of the covenant God commanded for you. And it's easy for us as New Testament believers to think, you know, that's kind of archaic language. It kind of makes sense for the Old Testament, but what's the relevance of it today? You know, what we need to realize is this is a central verse. Not just to this passage in Hebrews, but this is a central verse for us understanding Scripture. That it is all about blood. How Jesus shed his own blood to redeem his own people. You know, as we think about this idea that our Christian hope rests upon the blood of a man who died as a criminal on a cross, there's, there's a very basic question we ought to ask. Why in the world did Jesus have to shed his blood for our sins? You know, couldn't God just forgive sins without blood? And couldn't God just say, you know, don't worry about it at all? Well, this section of Hebrews gives us three reasons that we desperately needed the blood of Christ shed. And the first is this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Old Testament worship was extremely bloody. There were literally through the years millions of sacrifices. It was so bloody that on feast days, the blood would would be everywhere. It would be pulled up and with nowhere to go. And so an intricate system of troughs were created to let the blood flow down from the temple, down the temple mount, so that it wouldn't just, just pull up in the temple there. What's important about that, and that's what this passage, especially verse 19, when it talks about the hyssop and the blood being sprinkled, is that, that 
everything in the Old Testament hinged upon blood. So what would happen is the priest would take a a hyssop branch, dip it in blood, and he would sprinkle it over almost everything, over the people, over the altar, over the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know what the point of that was? Why all the blood? Behold the effects of sin. That was the point of blood upon blood. That was the point of all of it was see what sin does. You know, and and that was no new news. That goes all the way back to the beginning, the idea that sin kills. So you think back to the garden. God creates Adam and Eve. He tells them, you can have it all. It's all yours, except there's one tree. Don't eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or the Hebrew says, you'll die, I die. It's emphatic there. What's the point? Sin kills. And you only, Adam and Eve sin, and and just a few verses later, we see evidence of that. Adam and Eve realize they're naked. They create coverings of fig leaves, which are really terrible coverings, don't hide anything. And they, God looks upon them, and he kills one of his created animals and takes the skin as a covering for Adam and Eve. Even after the first sin, something had to die. Sin requires death. Why did God want us to understand that? He wanted us to understand just how awful sin really is. Something has to die because of sin. Now, if you're ever to to think, you know, God, that's kind of extreme for someone or something to have to die because of sin— You know, do you realize that question tells us a whole lot more about us than about God? It tells us that we have no idea how sinful sin really is. You know, every sin, even the most unnoticeable sins, humanly speaking, are acts of rebellion against a holy God who sees everything, even down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. No sin goes unnoticed, and there is no sin in the universe that will go unpunished. And so if sin is a bigger deal than we think, so that it requires the shedding of blood, that means someone or something has to die for sin. That's what the Old Covenant, with all of its sacrifices, were communicating. But if you remember, it had to happen over and over and over and over again. It couldn't fix the sin problem. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, in other words, outwardly, they're able to to make you ceremonially clean, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, that entire old covenant system with millions of sacrifices through the years, it couldn't take away one sin. It only pointed to our need of a greater sacrifice. Or another way to say it is, it wasn't the right blood type. It had to be human blood to atone for human sin. A bull could not take away my sin. Well, that's reasonable, okay? If you're struggling with this and you said, but why did it have to be Jesus' blood? You know, why couldn't it be John's blood? Why couldn't it be Heidi's blood? Because only Christ's blood 
was utterly perfect. It was not polluted with the DNA of sin. He lived a sinless life at every turn so that he could die a substitutionary death. You know, we, we, do you think about that much? That, that Christ saves us not only by his death, but by his perfect life, that for 33 years he perfectly obeyed the law, never once sinned, even in his heart, never once rolled his eyes at his parents. But as we said, sin will not go unpunished. And so we need to realize every sin will be dealt with, and it is either going to be dealt with on you in the final judgment, or it was dealt with on Christ upon the cross. But one way or another, every sin will be judged, or God would be an unjust judge. Now, sometimes people will say, you know, you Christians, are, you're arrogant because you believe that Jesus is the only way. I mean, couldn't other, couldn't other people save? Couldn't there be other ways of salvation? We saw that last week. I referenced the Ligonier study on the state of theology that almost half of professing Protestants, almost half of professing evangelical Christians, believe there are other ways to God than just through Jesus. Now, that's a denial of the term evangelical, but that's beside the point. But when somebody asks you that, isn't there another way? Why does Jesus have to be the only way? You know what I'd say to them? You know, if anyone else had lived a perfectly righteous life and then died to take away our sins, oh, and by the way, happened to be both divine and human, then that person could do it. But that hasn't happened, and it's not going to happen. And so as you're talking with that person, and they want to know why you Christians are so narrow, don't let it become about what we believe. Let, let it center upon who Jesus is and what he has done. Is there anybody else that could do what Jesus has done in bearing our sins, in living a perfect life? in rising, being raised from the dead? If there was anybody else, then Jesus was unnecessary. People need to understand that to reject Christ is to say, I will take the punishment for my sins myself. And so that's one reason that Jesus had to shed his blood. And I want to stop there just for a moment and meditate on that. It, it's really easy to sanitize the cross, to sanitize the blood of Christ. And so we have these beautiful necklaces that adorn our necks with crosses on them. We have, we have bumper stickers on our cars. We sing about the blood of Christ. But we need to understand that when we talk about the shed blood of Christ, what we're really saying is, behold the effects of my sin. This is what I did. This is what I deserve. It shows us the seriousness of sin, but you know what else it shows us? The incredible love of God. The incredible love of Christ who shed his blood for us. Don't we get that backwards sometimes? Sometimes people are shocked to think of a God who would judge sin and not at all surprised that God would save. Almost as if everybody's entitled to salvation but we get it backwards. We should look at the cross, see the heinousness of sin, and be amazed that God would love any of us, that God would save any of us. Only the shedding of blood could lead to the forgiveness of sins, and only the perfect blood of the Lord Jesus could accomplish that. That's the first thing. Second, second reason Jesus shed his blood, and that is because of God's covenant. 
you know, again, an outsider might come into Christian fellowship and say, why do you people sing about covenants? His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the woman. You people are weird. You know, probably most people's knowledge of covenants outside of the church is their homeowners association booklets. Why in the world would you sing about that? But as Christians, we are talking about something that is at the center of our faith, God's covenant with us. But I'm afraid, I I assume that not even many Christians would be able to explain what a covenant is or what God's covenant has to do with Christ shedding his blood. Let's, Let's think about what a covenant is for a moment. In the times of the Bible, a covenant was a common political arrangement, sometimes between equals, but typically between a greater and a lesser king, the greater king known as a suzerain, the lesser king known as a vassal. And they would enter into some sort of agreement together. It had certain terms, and there were sanctions if that covenant were violated. Well, biblical covenants mirror, in a sense, those political covenants as the greater uh, king, which is God, enters into a covenant with a lesser, with, a, with his people, the church. Palmer Robertson, a, a dear godly elder brother and, and Old Testament scholar, defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. Sovereignly administered means Nothing or nobody bound God to do this. He, by his own will, entered into a covenant. And it's more than just a casual relationship. It's God committing himself to his elect people. And in return, we are to be committed to him. And sometimes in the old covenant, covenants were sealed with blood, with a blood ceremony. That's not actually what Robertson's talking about here when he says a bond in blood sovereignly administered. He means it's a life and death bond that God forges with those whom he has chosen. I want you to see this play out. Look with me at Ephesians 1 for a moment. That before the foundation of the world, God chose a people to enter into covenant with. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption. Do you see what that's saying? Before the world even began, God engaged in a covenant. He he promised himself, pledged himself to redeem a people. And he, through eternity, has been faithful to that covenant. If, If you know the Old Testament well, you know there's this phenomenal, this marvelous word, hesed, and sometimes it's, it's translated mercy or loving kindness or covenant faithfulness, but there's really no perfect English translation for this word, but it's used 248 times in the Old Testament. And it speaks of God's relentless commitment to these people whom he, before the foundation of the world, chose. In fact, he chose us regardless of anything we would do. It was not because of anything that we would warrant. That would be a religion of works. 
but this is pure grace. It is based on God's sovereign choice. And listen to this. Nothing in this world or in heaven above or in hell below can shake God's resolve to love his covenant people. That is how relentless God is to love these people that, according to Ephesians 1, he set his love upon. But here's the problem. You and I haven't kept our end of the covenant, have we? We haven't been perfect covenant keepers. In fact, do you know who we are in Scripture? Think about the book of Hosea for a moment. You remember Gomer? Gomer was the unfaithful, adulterous wife. She's us. We're her. We are covenant breakers. And what had to happen to covenant breakers? Blood had to be shed. They had to bear the covenant curses. But Hebrews is saying here, hey, let me explain to you why Jesus shed his blood. He shed his blood. He became you, by the way. He became like you. He, he, he took on human flesh. He became one with you in every way except for sin. And he shed his blood so that you could be reconciled to the Father, so that the covenant could be kept. In the assurance of pardon earlier, I read Romans 3 that God is both just and justifier of all who believe. How could he both be just and justify us? Because Jesus kept the covenant for us. And then he took the covenant punishment that we deserve. Now, another application. This means then, if God's love for you was established before the foundation of the world. Nothing you do can make God cease to love you. You know, we get confused on that uh, sometimes as believers, and we think that maybe God started to love us when we turned to him, when we started to get our lives in order, when we decided to follow Jesus. But look at Ephesians chapter 1. It was before the foundation of the world. Don't get this backwards. Don't think that it was your faithfulness that made God love you. God didn't set his love upon you because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would one day believe. You believe today because God set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. That's the covenant faithfulness of God. And what that means is you can go back as far as the beginning now, the beginning of what? We don't know because we can't comprehend something that has no beginning. And what you'll find is that God's covenant people have been stamped upon his heart from eternity past. You, if you are a Christian, have been beloved of God since before the world was set in place. It's incomprehensible but true. That means that if you belong to Christ, there was never a moment in eternity where God did not love you. And just think about it for a second. If God's love for his people had no beginning, doesn't that mean it's also going to have no end? And that nothing you do, if you belong to Christ, nothing you do can shake God's love away from you. Nothing you do can cause God to loosen his grip upon you who trust in Christ.
So Christ shed his blood in order to fulfill the requirements of the covenant for the sake of his people. But there's a third equally encouraging reason that Jesus shed his blood, according to Hebrews, and that is to secure our inheritance. Look at verse 16 and pay careful attention here. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will only takes effect at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, if you're reading straight through this passage in English, you'd have to say, wait a second, how did this become all about a will? We were talking about covenants, and now how are we talking about wills? Well, that was actually a translator's decision. The word is the same, covenant and will. It's the same Greek word, diatheke. And so he trans- the translator is translated it as will here to understand the point that, that verses 16 and 17 are making. That at the heart of God's covenant with us is a tremendous inheritance that surpasses anything you or I could ever imagine. It's an awesome picture of the loving kindness, that hesed of God. His covenant requires his son to, to receive the death of a covenant breaker. And in exchange, us covenant breakers receive the awesome inheritance of sons and daughters. That is very good news, beloved. The gospel is all about God lavishing his great love upon us beyond anything you or I in a million years could ever conceive of. It is better news than even that. What's our inheritance? Certainly it's heaven, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the streets of gold. Oh, and bodies, new bodies that don't ache or get sick, or get cancer, or get thick in the middle. So much more. But do you know what our real inheritance is? You do. It's Jesus. He's our portion. He's our inheritance. It's not not the gift, but the giver that we so look forward to. You know, to the non-Christian, that's not very enticing. And so that's why all the secular, uh, all these other religions, they, they promise sort of sensual, earthly pleasures for their faithful and as christians we just say i want jesus that's what i want and hebrews is saying here one of the reasons jesus shed his blood was to secure our inheritance because you don't get the inheritance while the person's still alive some of you have lost loved ones through the years and maybe you received an inheritance but i know for many of you You think to yourself, I would give all that inheritance up for just one more minute with that person. Well, with Christ, we get both. We get the inheritance and we get Jesus himself. Heard the story of a homeless man from Bolivia named Tomas Martinez. And he had been on the streets since childhood. But somewhere along the way, one of his relatives had become very, very wealthy. And the relative died and left him a great fortune. But Martinez had no idea. He had no way to know. He lived on the streets. He lived off of refuse. And the police went to try to track him down. But every time he saw the police coming, he ran away because he thought he was going to be arrested for for living on the streets. And he fled from the very people who came to tell him about his inheritance. 
You know, people often assume that God has nothing for us except bad news. But he actually has an incredible inheritance that he delights to lavish upon all who trust in him. And so we are wise to stop running and turn to Christ. And that's why we obey Christ. That's why we want to live lives of obedience, not because we're afraid he'll change his mind towards us. That's impossible. It's not because we're afraid he'll take away our inheritance. It's because we've seen this incredible grace and mercy that he's shown us, and we have to say, how in the world could I ever want to sin against a God like that? You know, if we really love Christ and we love him as our inheritance, then we want to obey him. That's what Jesus said in John 14. Those who love me will obey my commandments. Not to earn an inheritance, but because he has lavished it on us. Let me speak for a moment with those of you who are younger. And you see your friends who are living in the world and they seem to be having so much fun. They don't have the same restraints and constraints that maybe you do and they they don't have the same rules and they, they seem to enjoy so much freedom. And it can be tempting to think, you know, I wonder if life's just more fun without Jesus. That's why we see young people going off to college and so few return to the faith. It's not just young people that experience that. Satan feeds that idea into every one of us. But here's what we need to realize, and hear me on this, especially young people, please. If you turn your back on Christ, what you're turning your back on is not only salvation, but that incredible inheritance that Christ earned, that Christ purchased for his people. And what will it really profit you if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? If you want real and lasting joy, that's something you can only find in the Lord Jesus. So why? If somebody were to ask you, why did Jesus have to shed his blood? For the forgiveness of sins, to keep the covenant, to secure the inheritance that God has for you. Well, how do we apply this text? We're going to apply this text in about six or seven minutes by coming to the Lord's table. All three of these things are on display in the Lord's Supper. Look with me at Matthew 26 for a moment, and it'll be really helpful for you to turn there. We're going to travel back to the upper room where Jesus and his disciples observed that old covenant meal, Passover, for the last time, and they were partaking of the lamb, they were partaking of the meal as it had been instituted 1,400 years before. Look at Matthew 26, starting at verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. You know, that would have been a peculiar thing for the disciples because they knew the Passover meal. They had probably taken it 30 or 40 times in their life. And at the center of the Passover meal was the meat of the lamb, that lamb that was sacrificed, and then the people would eat it. But Christ says here, the bread. Why didn't he point to meat? Because he was the sacrifice. 
and you only eat the meat if it stays dead. Our sacrifice is up in heaven. And so he's saying to us, until you are united with me in heaven and we feast together, this bread will be my stand-in. This bread will, will represent me, and it will nourish and feed you the way that only I can, because this is, this is me. This is the bread of heaven. Verse 27, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Isn't that fascinating? In Hebrews 9, verse 20, what did we say? This is the blood of the covenant God commanded for you. But Jesus says here, this is my blood. The blood of the old covenant was bulls and goats, but it couldn't take away sin. It couldn't undo the curse. But Jesus is saying, this is my blood. It has the power to forgive sins and to take away the covenant curse and to secure your inheritance. Christ endured the covenant curse so that the cup signifies all that we receive in covenant blessings. And then our Lord goes on which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is your guarantee. Is is this too good to be true that my sins could really be forgiven because of what Jesus did? Oh, it's true because just look at the cup. Your sins are completely forgiven. This is why we, we chose a sweet wine for the Lord's Supper today. Because Your sins have been completely forgiven. Christ took the bitterness of sin and judgment and he drank it himself. And what you get is the cup of blessing. You get the sweetness of the gospel. There is not one ounce of sin's judgment left for you if you belong to Christ. There's not one drop of condemnation for you who look to Jesus. That's why Paul called it the cup of blessing. Verse 29 Jesus says, I tell you, I'll not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. He's speaking of our inheritance here and the amazing wedding supper of the Lamb when we will recline with Him in unhindered fellowship face to face with Jesus Christ. My friends, as you come to the table this morning, consider this, your sins are the reason His body had to be broken. And his blood poured out. Consider the heinousness of sin and confess your sins to him. But remember the love of Jesus who gladly endured the cross for you. The Lord's Supper isn't just a memorial, but it is a foretaste of eternal fellowship with Christ. It's a visible, tangible, tasteable expression of his undying, yet dying love for us. What meal could possibly mean more to you? So as we come to the table, you may have done it hundreds of times in your life, but focus your hearts on what Christ has done to forgive your sins, to keep the covenant, and to secure your inheritance as we pray together. Lord God in heaven, we praise you for the gift of the gospel and the shed blood of Christ. And we know that we are a peculiar people. We're a strange people in the eyes of the world because the world cannot understand why we love the thought of a man bleeding to death upon a cross. But it's on the shoulders of that man 
that our eternal hope rests. Father, we praise you that even the cross could not hold Jesus. But he stands even now in heaven, ever living to intercede for us.